And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the Blue Wire podcast network as well as the HubSpot podcast network. Now, the HubSpot podcast network has incredible shows like The Hustle Daily. It's hosted by Zachary Crockett, Jacob Cohen, Rob Litterst, and Juliet Bennett Ryla. Now, The Hustle Daily brings you a healthy dose of irreverent, offbeat and informative takes on business, tech, and news. And it happens daily. So if you want to stay up to date on the latest and greatest, and some of these topics are interesting to you, then you're going to love the Hustle Daily. Uh, Topics like Amazon's grocery strategy, the rise of the ugly shoe economy, is AI the secret to love, and America's sleep deficit problem. So if these are topics you want to get into and you love hearing up-to-date content whenever you wake up in the morning, Go listen to The Hustle Daily wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, my guest is Ron Gruner. He is the author of We the Presidents. Now, We the Presidents is not just another history book. You have to understand Ron's background. So Ron was chief executive of three tech companies, Alliant Computer, Shareholder.com, and Sky Analytics. Each of his companies were pioneers at their time in their industry. So Alliant was Parallel Processing, Shareholder.com was Investor Relations, Sky was Legal Analytics. Each of his companies was successful. Uh, They delivered healthy financial returns. Alliant went public in 1986. Shareholder.com and Sky Analytics were profitably acquired by major public corporations in 2006, 2015, respectively. So he's had an incredible career as a chief executive. He faced all the challenges of a chief executive, balancing the interests of shareholders, customers, employees, focusing on long-term vision while executing against short-term goals. He did all the CEO things. Now, he took that experience and he wanted to write a book that it takes into history and understands the outcome of different presidents, different administrations. So he wrote We the Presidents. Uh, The book focuses on effects rather than causes, on results rather than politics, on economics rather than ideology. It focuses on linking presidential administrations to outcomes rather than just isolated presidencies. In the actual podcast, we spoke about some of his career success, but then we went into discussing U.S. policy, U.S. current cultural economic climate through a business lens we spoke about inflation we spoke about uh we spoke about uh equitable opportunity we spoke about uh modern monetary theory uh we spoke about the current social climate um and we spoke about past social climates past economic uh economic environment past a monetary theory to show the, the parallels and the dichotomies between what we're experiencing now versus what, uh, what, we, what 
you've experienced as a nation for the past hundred years through different policies that different presidents have uh, uh, deployed. We also spoke about some of the stories behind some presidents. Um, we spoke about most liked, most hated, and why. We spoke about uh, most overrated, most underrated, most successful, uh, largest failures, with different presidents, different administrations, because he went into all the history. He understood the personal lives of presidents, which allowed him to understand how uh, presidents through periods of time have led to the current social economic environment that we're currently living in and experiencing. So history, uh, policy, climate, all through a business lens. It was an incredible book. Uh, it was an incredible interview. He's an incredibly smart man. I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right into it. This is uh, Ronald Gruner. He is three-time CEO, but most recently the author of We the Presidents. Well, I'm Ron Gruner, and I was uh, born and raised in a small town in Oklahoma called Ponca City. And Ponca City was a town of about 25,000 people. It was uh, famous at one time for the formation of Continental Oil Company. It was an oil town. Uh, grew up in Oklahoma, but uh, in high school, I fell in love with computers. And that sounds like a strange thing to say, but that was in the early 60s, in the mid-60s. And computers were like black magic then. Nobody took them for granted. And so I wound up uh, spending my whole career in computers. And to do that, I had to move from Oklahoma to Massachusetts, namely Boston, when the Boston was a major high technology center, uh, even before Silicon Valley. So I've had two experiences living. I grew up in Oklahoma, one of the reddest of the red states, and I spent 40 years in Boston and Massachusetts, one of the bluest of the blue states. So I've seen both perspectives. And one of the things that has troubled me uh, in the last few years is how divided we've come, both uh, as a country, as friends, and as family. Uh, and, you know, the, the aspect of my two states, Oklahoma being very red and, and Massachusetts being very blue, kind of characterizes that. Now, I decided to write a book about 2017, and that was very presumptuous because I had never written a book before. Uh, I have no history background, but I have been an entrepreneur. And uh, I've started three companies and sold three companies successfully. One went public in the 80s and then two others sold to public companies. And I decided that writing a book wasn't a whole lot different than starting a new company. You have to do research. You have to be objective. You have to be persistent. And uh, that's what I tried to do. So I spent four years writing We the President starting in 2017 and finishing last year in 2021. And it was published on February 11th. And the whole idea of the book is to write it from the perspective of uh, you might say a chief executive who's got to make very hard decisions and can't let partisan politics or ideology creep into those decisions. So I wrote that uh, with a heavy emphasis on economics. And I did. I never used terms like Democrat, Republican, left, right wing, uh, conservative, liberal, never used any of those partisan terms and always just try to focus on what the issues were, whether they're economic issues or domestic or international issues, rather than ideology. And that's that's what got me started on writing the book. That's incredible. And that's that. So. This is this is a completely different view. It's not a historian's view. It's it's someone that is trying to educate themselves. That they, I am assuming, as somebody goes into this book, they're educating themselves on on how policies actually affect business decisions, financial, economic environments, and and you're doing that through the lens of the people that are potentially the most the most. Uh, 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 persuasive in in basically start in. Um, 
in affecting those decisions through presidents, through uh, through different governments over the years. Now, is the goal to unpack the history and then uh, understand lessons and maybe, for example, understand that, uh, you know, all the things that we experience in our lifetime are not so new and novel and history does repeat itself? Is that the goal of the book or what is the actual takeaway for somebody who's reading this? Well, I think one takeaway, uh, I don't think I'd call it the goal, but one takeaway is that history does repeat itself. Let me just give you one or two examples. Uh, uh, President Donald Trump ran on the notion of uh, America first. And for most Americans, they had never heard that phrase before. But Warren G. Harding, the first president I cover in my book, uh, ran in 1920 on exactly that phrase, America first. Uh, That was later adapted by... uh, uh, a group trying to uh, a group uh, campaigning against America's involvement in World War II called America First. Also, Harding ran on the notion of a return to normalcy, uh, which is a very similar to what Donald Trump ran on, Make America Great Again. Both of those are looking backwards, just as Ronald Reagan ran on Let's Make America Great Again. Trump actually shortened that to Make America Great Again. So that theme of America First and looking back to better times and trying to return America to those better times. Uh, it goes back at least 100 years, Harding, Reagan, Donald Trump. Uh, but to answer your question more specifically in terms of policies uh, that presidents invoke and how they affect us today, uh, that was the primary purpose to really understand how we got where we are, both the good, bad, the good aspects and the bad aspects of where we, we think we are as a nation. And so I focus a lot, for example, on taxation policies in that regard and on uh, international policies in that regard. I mean, one of the major topics we uh, as Americans are dealing with, and actually the world is dealing with today, is the the crises on the the, the borders of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually cover that in quite a bit of detail, anticipating that in the Clinton chapter, where President Clinton actually encouraged the expansion of NATO eastward into former Warsaw Pact countries, which was predicted by George Keenan, probably the top diplomat in the State Department at the time, fifty years of experience as a diplomat when he made that st- when he made the prediction in 1997. He says. When NATO moved into Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic in 1999, he says, this is going to cause a second Cold War. He predicted that in the 90s. I talk about that extensively in my book. And nobody listened to him, unfortunately. Here we are faced with a situation where, right or wrong, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, feels threatened by NATO advancing onto its borders. And that was predicted by some very smart people 30 years ago. Now, when you go through this incredible history and you start to understand that there's been similar situations before you must start to wonder um why haven't we done things differently why haven't we improved as a country so do you have an understanding as to why we always default to making the same mistakes making the same foreign policy decisions that have been predicted 30 years previous by very smart people why do we forget that's my main question Well, I don't think it's quite as bad as you might suggest, Scott. I think we are improving as a country, and I'm not saying that uh, gratuitously. Uh, Let me just give you an example. Um, uh, Under Harding and Coolidge, uh, they passed immigration uh, acts in 1921 and 1924, which were designed to keep Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans out of the United States, namely Italians and Slavs who were Catholic and Jews. 
And they were quite explicit about that. Keeping Catholics and Jews out of the United States would maintain the racial homogeneity in the United States. We never do that anymore. And we that's, that's that was a, it's a horrendous thing to think about. Mm-hmm. But that existed 100 years ago. And it wasn't until 1952 that Asians could become naturalized citizens. So if somebody immigrated to the United States, say, from India or Japan, uh, they could not become a U.S. citizen until 1952. So we've swept all that aside and our immigration policies, although we still have perhaps a ways to go, are much, much better and more open and more uh, more caring than they were even 50 to 60 years ago. It's certainly 100 years ago. I guess you don't realize how recent um, some of these things are. When you say 50 to 60 years ago, that doesn't seem that long. But no, it isn't. It astonished yeah, me when yeah. I did my research to discover that. So, so Asians could not be naturalized citizens up up until fifty years ago, sixty years up ago. until nineteen fifty two, with one exception, the Chinese could, and that was made possible in nineteen forty three because the Chinese were allies of America during World War Two, and they allowed the Chinese to be naturalized during World War Two, but they were the only Asians that could. So that's a really interesting point, and I guess when I look at America today, and you make a good point that times have been and policies have been much harsher and our general disposition towards other people has not been great in history. I don't think anyone would argue that. But but I still feel like we always default to an us versus them, very polarized, very separated, always angry. And I think it's uh, reached a boiling point in the past two years. So yes, we have made massive improvements, but I still feel like there's a lot of anger and frustration and stress in the country. And I'm wondering if there's, say, is, to say we've moved forward, obviously we have, but do you feel as though we've properly learned lessons from the past or could there be a better emphasis so that we don't always feel so separated and segregated and angry at each other? What's the, what's the way that we could properly move forward and, and basically stop what's happened over the past two years from occurring in the next two years, in the next five years, 10 years? Well, we have a, a, a political party system, which in my introduction, I, I point out quotations from George Washington during his administration, yeah. the first president, how he felt that the, the, the embryonic parties that were forming in the United States around Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, one focused on federal government, one focused on states' rights, was badly dividing the nation. This was... Uh, talks he made uh, in a speech he made in uh, 1797. So much of what we have is the fact that we have two political parties that are always striving for power. We don't have term limits. We have huge amounts of money flowing in, financing these these uh, attacks on each other. And as long as we have that, I think we're going to be divided. I think another aspect that tends to make America revert back to the isolationism is both a strength and a weakness of America. And that's what Alex de Tocqueville called American exceptionalism. He saw Americans when he visited us in the 1830s and 40s as an exceptional race. I beg your pardon. I don't want to use that phrase as an exceptional people, an exceptional yeah, country. Yeah. So we've always thought of ourselves as very, very special. Many countries, of course, do that. But I think we do that in the extreme. And that's caused a lot of the isolationism and the division for example, over the immigration of Hispanics now that we have in the United States, because many people want to keep American exceptional. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, I find it very interesting. And, you know, you mentioned this two-party system, which is a system that we're all very used to. But has there ever been uh, at any point in American history an alternative to a two-party system where 
uh, an additional third party. Oh, I, I, so I, so, you know, like I'm, I'm Canadian. So right now we have liberals, conservatives, but we also have uh, NDP, which is new democratic party, which definitely takes a, a significant, a significantly larger portion of votes than I would see a third party take in the U S. So how do we, is there any precedent for moving away from a pure two party system? And if so, what was that? But also how could we do that? How could we encourage that? Well, we've uh, we've had many attempts at uh, forming independent parties of third parties, uh, going back to the Know Nothing Party in the 19th century. That was basically taking a position regarding uh, uh, reducing immigration. Uh, John Anderson ran as an independent back in 1980, as I recall. Uh, we had a uh, Ross Perot who uh, started essentially uh, an independent movement that was quite successful in the 1990s. But they typically have a lifetime of one or two elections and then they die out. Uh, to, to basically run for election in the United States, you need tons of money and a small independent money party can't raise those funds to compete against the two major parties. So for all intents and purposes, we're a two party country. We, we will be indefinitely. That's unfortunate because I even know like um, when when Trump was running, uh, that, that was a conversation, too. And then he defaulted to Republican. Because I think that that's the only way that he found that he could capture enough of the base, uh, of the base. He couldn't run. He couldn't run independently. Um, so, you pull out all these lessons, which I think are are, are fabulous lessons from past presidents. Um, lessons that are things that we should learn from today in this in this book. Um, I want to go down two separate paths for this interview. I'd like to understand some of the lessons learned um, in, in economics, uh, Adam Smith, uh, modern monetary theory, and, and why that's such an important piece of the book. And then I would also like to just walk through some really interesting stories that you discovered doing research that maybe people don't know about past presidents, um, some things about successes, failures, uh, that, uh, that, that would be great if we just like brought to light and sort of like act as a teaser for what else, uh, people would get in the book, but first like monetary policy, cause I know that you put in a huge amount into economics. So why, why, when you're writing, cause you, you sort of touched on it, you wanted to write a book that, uh, that speaks to business individuals and business people, but, but why is economics such a huge portion of a book that could really just be uh, a history lesson? Well, to me, history is a means and not an end. I mean, what we really want to accomplish is to improve the well-being of American citizens. And for most people, that comes down to their, their pocketbook, okay? Their health and their pocketbook, but much of that relates to economics. And that's why I focus on that. And one of the greatest realizations, and I think uh, shocks that I had and during the research on the book is the amount of... Uh, income inequality that exists in the United States today. And I know people are, are skeptical about that, but let me give you some hard figures. In uh, 1968, the, uh, the middle 60% of taxpayers, the, the, the middle class and the lower 20%, the, the, the lower income people typically making minimum wage or slightly above that, had their peak incomes. And since then it's been flat to down. So let me give you a specific. Let's take a family of four with one spouse working full time, one spouse working half time. That's 3,000 hours a year. These are not slackers. These are hard workers. In 1968, they were making a minimum wage, as I recall, of $1.60 in that range. In 2020 dollars, 
today's dollars, that's worth about $12 an hour, $11.80 an hour. And if you calculate that out, that family was making thirty-four, dollars $35,000 a year, basically putting them into the lower middle income class, a comfortable lifestyle. And they were working at minimum wage. Now, today, minimum wage is $7.25 here in the United States. And that same family working just as hard has taken a 38% pay cut. And they are now well below the poverty line. And if they're going to survive, they're going to have to get food stamps and other support from the government, which is what up until recently, workers at Walmart, for example, and, uh, and uh, all the fast food chains, although they may be working full time, they were all to, uh, required to, to survive taking food stamps. So one of the reasons social spending has increased so much in the United States since the 1960s is because pay has gone down for much of the United States. And that's what's happened. Um, on the other hand, a family in 1968 that was making $34,000 strictly on dividends from a stock fund, like a, a trust fund, let's call it, family of four, not working, taking dividends, today their income wouldn't be $35,000, it would be $257,000. It went up by a factor of seven. So you've got two wow. families, one basically living off capital and dividends, and one living off the minimum wage, one gets a pay cut of 38% and one gets an increase in their income of seven times. Now, I'm not saying capital is bad. Capital finances everything we do, but we need to spread, I think, some of that down to people that are working hard and barely surviving. And that's not socialism. That's basically just being equitable in the distribution of how we accredit work in this country, because without those people working as they are in the middle and the lower classes, we wouldn't have the lifestyle America enjoys today. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, the new year might have you thinking ahead to what you want out of your career. So when you think about your success story, what do you actually picture? Is it retiring early with a beautiful view of the skyline? Is it leaving a legacy with your name on it? Or maybe it's helping influence and change some of the world's most pressing issues. Whatever it is, writing your success story starts by working smart. Because when you work smart, your success story writes itself. A HubSpot CRM platform helps your marketing campaigns work harder and smarter. With intuitive visual workflows and bot builders, you can create scalable automated campaigns across email, social media, web, and chat so your customers hear your messages loud and clear. Are you tired of your content not adapting to mobile, making it difficult for your customers to absorb your message? A HubSpot CRM platform optimizes your content for multiple devices so that you can reach your customers wherever they are which is just smart. Learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM at HubSpot.com. But we've been, we've been trying to, to be more equitable and we've, and there's been so many initiatives to support, to support the, the lower and middle class. Um, why? And there's, you always see like, you know, I think Biden just put out a stat, like there's 460,000, hundreds of thousands of jobs that were just created. Obviously a lot of that has to do with, um, employment that was created that was probably lost during the pandemic, but there seems to always be moving forward, but it seems like the, like you mentioned that, that lower middle class is always, is always losing out. They're losing a disproportionate amount of, of income versus inflation, but when did that start moving in that direction? Was there a policy? Was there a, was there a particular attitude in the culture of the U.S.? Was there one item? Like, 
how do where do we trace that back to? Because you mentioned in the '60s, right? I think it was the '60s that you said when, yeah, so that people were making this so much and they could afford like a, a decent lifestyle. What was the what was the point that we stopped protecting and stopped supporting so that it all got away from us? Because now it just seems incredibly disproportionate. Well, I think in the 60s, a number of things were happening. Uh, obviously, we began to lose uh, business and jobs overseas, starting in the 60s. Automobiles, for example, and consumer goods. I mean, that's when Japanese cars and uh, Japanese televisions began to, and radios began to come into the United States in the 60s and 70s. That was one factor. Uh, another factor was growing automation. But another factor, which I think gave business, uh, and believe me, I've been part of business my whole life. I've started three companies. I believe in profits, absolutely. But another factor was uh, an economist, Milt Friedman, who wrote a landmark paper in the early 1960s and was published in the New York Times uh, magazine in 1970 that basically said business has one and only responsibility to make the largest possible profits for shareholders as long as it stays within the law. And so... Nothing in terms of other stakeholders, the environment, uh, uh, the, the community, uh, customers or uh, employees Employee, was, yeah. came, sec came second to making as much money as possible. Now, when I first started working in the 60s, firms like IBM and General Motors were very proud of the fact, if you look at their annual reports from those years, they were very proud of the fact that they were a, a good corporate citizen and they supported their community, they supported their employees. They were good to their customers. But by after Friedman put that out, I remember uh, distinctly, and you can uh, look this up, it's easy to find, that uh, McDonald, who was the chair, chief executive of a large computer company, Burroughs Corporation, was following Mitt Friedman's guidelines saying, our policy is to be so tight-handed we keep our customers sullen but not rebellious. So he was just focusing on maximizing profits, even though his customers might be sullen because he had them locked in. So that's, I think, that's the time frame and the reasons, I think, that we see things kind of peaked in the late 60s and have been flat to down since then. Now, I think it's good news, though, in that the American Business Council, about five or six years ago, began to move away from that notion, Milt Friedman's notion, that profits are uh, profits over everything and are trying to treat their employees more fairly. And if you look at the, the rise in wages, even before we began to see uh, the issues just before and after the pandemic, pressure on wages upward, uh, places like McDonald's and Walmart began raising the minimum wage, the, the, the lower wages of their of their workers uh, pretty significantly. And that's uh, that's improved very much over the last six or seven years. So that's a positive sign. It is a positive sign. I, I guess it just has to be it, <laughs> like it, it's good to continue these initiatives. The, the, the item that's unfortunate is that there's so much inflation that it's still going to like the inflation is outpacing the increase in salary. So the quality of life is not going to improve dramatically until we can uh, sort of tackle both issues at the same time. Right. That, that's correct. Right of course, right the, infl the inflation issue is only the last six months or so. Correct. Uh, yes. Hopefully, yeah. we'll yeah. get that in hand. But uh, you know, when I talk about McDonald's and Walmart raising uh, raising wages, I mean they were doing that starting about 2015, and uh, they were uh, you know workers there were really beginning to benefit. But now inflation, of course, become has become a major concern. Uh, a main takeaway from that: why was why was Milton Friedman so influential? I understand the rationale. Like if somebody says make more money, but why did that shift? the course of business thinking across all of the US. It doesn't make sense to me why that one individual impacted at such a such an extreme level. 
Well, I mean, he was a very well-respected uh, economist for good reasons. He had many insights into uh, the economy and how the economy works. Uh, and uh, I, I guess it's uh, it's hard for me to say from this distance, but I think the feeling was uh, to the extent that if, money's, if companies make a lot of money, I'm going to use uh, and Andrew Mellon's original phrase, that money will trickle down into the rest of the economy. Andrew Mellon in the 1920s was the first to use that phrase that if if uh, companies are successful and wealthy people become successful, that money trickles down through the rest of the economy. And I think I'm, I'm presuming this. I think that was his operating assumption that there's got to be something. There's got to be a locomotive driving the economy. That's companies. And if they're very, very successful, if they're very, very successful, that'll feed everything else. And it just wound up turning. It fed the shareholders, but a lot of it didn't trickle down to anybody else. And do you feel like the the current version of, of modern money, uh, modern monetary theory and socially conscious business and um, businesses that are focused on not just the shareholders, but stakeholders, um, do you feel like that is something that is being championed by, by any, uh, is it a partisan conversation or is it something that is currently moving forward regardless of whether or not Republican, Democrat, um, it's something that's sort of the the business environment is changing uh, regardless. Well, there's kind of two topics there. One, modern monetary theory, and I'll discuss that in a second. And the other is uh, 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 income equality or uh, income, let's call it normalization for a larger mm -hmm. proportion of the U.S. workers. And, and in the latter regard, in terms of uh, income uh, normalization, I, th I think that is improving. And I will give a... a Former President Donald Trump credit for that, basically pointing to the, uh, the forgotten American worker, forgotten because of uh, jobs flowing overseas, because of taxation policies, for a number of policies. He made that a major theme of his campaign, and he's built a very loyal political base because of that. So he has given visibility to that issue. And it's going to be hard for anybody now to say, well, uh, it's shareholders above all and uh, uh Workers, uh, uh, you know, take second or third tier. Uh, that's going to be yeah, very yeah. difficult. So he's really brought that to the uh, to the forefront to his credit. Modern monetary theory. Uh, we'll see what happens on that, but I think that's going to be wishful thinking. That basically says the United States can issue as much debt as it wishes, as long as it can find buyers for that debt, and as, as long as it can find buyers, it just keep pushing it out. Uh, that just seems to me like uh, you're just begging for a fall because uh, once uh, people say, you know, I'm beginning to lose a little bit of trust in the dollar for some reason, mm -hmm. we can't predict what that might be. And buyers begin to back away, interest rates go up and that whole thing collapse like a house of cards. Now, to give you an analogy on that, in the well, for decades and certainly through the 90s and the 2000s, it, the house prices were rising every year by you know, three, five, eight percent, just inexorably, and they had never really decreased. They might slow down, you know, from 1950 to 19, uh, 2005, they might have slowed, but they never took a steep drop. And so the whole mortgage industry and the finance industry was based on the fact that house prices were always going to rise. And once they took a dip and then fell, everything collapsed. Uh, in 2008, 2009. And I'm worried that with our national debt climbing like it is, based on the theory that we'll just keep pushing debt out, we can always refinance, it's going to be a repeat of 2008 on steroids. Hmm, interesting. And why, and why, so, and help me understand, because I'm, I'm a layman in, 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 in monetary theory and, and the, the idea, like the, um, like the theories that drive some of the policy decisions. So modern monetary theory, is really that concept. It's a concept that we can keep printing money to support our economy as long as there's a buyer for 
our products and services. Is that just in a, like a very basic, simple uh, definition? Is that what, yeah, I think what that's an excellent means? definition. Now, economists might kind of spruce that up and wrap a ribbon around that, but that, you know, you've got the essence of it right there. Interesting. And and why? Another silly question: Why is this considered modern monetary theory when it seems like this has always always been the way that we operate? Well, uh, it hasn't always been. I mean, people for uh, you know up until fairly recently were, were worried about the national debt. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know the, uh, many people were concerned about Obama issuing more debt during 2008, where they were worried about uh, the national debt and, and kicking off inflation. So there were worries about increasing debt up until a few years ago. And this whole idea of modern monetary theory is a fairly recent uh, uh, concept that's only been around a few years. And it says, don't worry, it's not going to be a problem. We can keep issuing this stuff because the dollars are the reserve currency of the world, and that's not going to change. Interesting. It doesn't seem like a logical uh the thought process behind that doesn't seem logical at all. It, I, I, I don't, I don't understand how that could be something that people could get behind. It, it like there seems to be so many flaws in that, that argument. Well, like, I, like, but the dollar has been supreme from true, at least true. the end of World War II, and the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. I mean, and uh, the United States uh, uh, almost daily is uh, you're kicking out sanctions against people, and that hurts them badly financially because most of the world's business and uh, even personal transactions are conducted in dollars. And if those dollars, um, uh, th th that gives the United States tremendous control over the economy of the world. So I think uh, many people are confident that's gonna stay around for a long time. But they've never pushed it this far since they moved off the gold standard. They've never pushed it to this level, have they, in history? No, I mean, our, uh, well, uh, there's lots of ways to measure the debt. If you measure the debt as a percentage of GDP, gross domestic product. So think of your a family that has an income of, a, say, $50,000 versus twenty-five. dollars A family with an income of $50,000 can afford a lot more credit card debt than one making $25,000. Exact, it's exactly the same thing with our national debt. Uh, so the ratio of the national debt to the GDP of the gross domestic product is important. And uh, the, the, probably the largest signal increase in that occurred uh, one of the largest was during the Reagan administration, where that went up, I, I don't recall exactly, about 40%. It was a huge increase as a percentage of GDP. The, the increase of debt relative to GDP over the last few years has gone up, but not quite as much as it has historically. Okay. And that's a, that's an important factor. So in some respects, this this increase, although people talk about trillions and trillions of dollars of new debt, there's lots of ways to measure that. But the most the best way is as a percentage of GDP, and it's not as bad as it looks. It's bad. I worry about it, but it's not quite as bad. It doesn't make it historic compared to times in the past. Very interesting. Okay, let's. So that's a good segue. So I want to talk about. I want to talk about sort of the the second piece of the book because I want to talk about some of the lessons learned from presidents historically. Some of the some of the stories that you that you researched and that you that you speak about in the book. Um, and I guess. I'll ask you as well. Are there any any because I'm gonna I'm gonna close this sort of this section out. But are there any other thoughts that you have on modern monetary theory, uh, the the future economic state of the U.S. Just prognosis, you know, forecasts that you have because you've done the research, you've lived in this for so long. Like where you see the economy going in the next five, ten years, positive, negative. Some thoughts on that. Well, if you look back at the, the the economic crashes in the last 100 years, the 
the crash of 1907, the Great Depression in the early 1930s, the, the savings and loan crash in the late 1980s, many people have forgotten about 2008. It's all based on optimistic thinking that what's happening now is going to continue happening in the future. Modern monetary theory is based on that same thinking. What's happening now is going to continue happening in the future. And so something uh, politicians and uh, leadership would ideally do is to have the courage to tell people that may not be the case and we may have to basically tighten our, our belt, whether that means cutting spending, raising taxes or both, to get our, our fiscal house in better order. And we haven't had many presidents willing to do that. Eisenhower did that when he was bringing down the war debt in the 1950s. He said, I'm not cutting taxes. We got to cut this war debt. And uh, people respected him for that. Uh, but we don't have many people now that do that. But we need somebody that steps up and gives us some bitter medicine because I think it's going to be needed. Um, let's go into some of the the stories that you that you discovered as you're doing research. So, you you how do you even begin to to research some of the 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 presidents? You're you're going in like what is the because there's so much information on every single one of them. I'm sure every single one. Well, there is probably a book and many books on every single uh, president's lifetime. So, what are you trying to cover in the chapter that? covers one particular president. What's the, the main takeaway? I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs, no more servers, no more updates, just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win, efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate 
on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text 
success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Kind of related to that question, people ask me, Ron, do you do an outline? And <laughs> I, uh, I, can, I surprise myself, I absolutely do not. I do not do outlines. When you wrote this book, you didn't do an outline? I did not do, other than knowing I'm going to have at least 17 chapters, one for each president, that was my outline. And so doing research now is much, much easier than it was just a few years ago. I mean, the, all, most of the records of the presidential libraries, the White House, the Department of State, uh, et cetera, they're all available online. So the way I begin a new chapter, let's say uh, Calvin Coolidge, who I knew very little about a few years ago, I would go on the web and do classic uh, web surf. And uh, starting with the White House Archives, Presidential Library at, uh, in Vermont, and that just led into broader and broader topics. And I would spend a, a couple of weeks just doing research, unstructured research, to kind of begin to form an opinion about who this man was. Mm-hmm. And that's how I that's how I proceeded. And the chapters grew organically. No chapter, all seventeen chapters have a somewhat different structure. Each one being individual to the president, because I think each one was slightly different in in how they approach things. Okay, no, that's fair. Um, so let's let's dive into a little bit of history here. So, uh, I, I'm going to premise with this. So, love him or hate him, Trump was very polarizing. Um, but I'm sure there's been a lot of other polarizing. Uh, presidents in history, but I feel like people sometimes forget what has occurred in history and what people have done and what they haven't done. So let's go into interesting stories from presidents past that probably would shock people if they were (laughs) acting in the way that they did several years ago uh, in in modern day. So what are some, um, what are some presidents that, uh, and, and some ridiculous uh, you know, very controversial things that people have done that have impacted that have impacted uh, the country. Well, there's I can name a number of presidents who took a tremendous amount of heat and criticism uh, during their time. Franklin Roosevelt, perhaps the most. Uh, Roosevelt basically took the, the the notion and reversed what Herbert Hoover was doing. Herbert Hoover said the government needs to stay out of people's affairs and the people need to bootstrap themselves up out of the depression. And there's, I have actual quotes of that in my book about Hoover. Franklin Roosevelt said, look, if businesses aren't giving jobs to people and people are starving, then the government's got to give them jobs. And that's what he did. He basically put the people to work building roads and highways and, and dams and all kinds of things. Uh, but he did that also. He raised taxes. And uh, the business establishment uh, weren't very happy about. He also put a lot of regulations in place, which they weren't happy about. So he took a lot of heat in the 1930s and was called a socialist and a communist because of that. And he was moving the country towards communism. Uh, But then when World War II happened, he didn't nationalize those companies. They all remained private. They were all allowed to make a small profit. There was coordination at the government level, but the companies all ran themselves. So he certainly wasn't what was predicted. The same thing happened with Eisenhower, who was... He had never belonged to a political party, much less the Communist Party, before he became president. But when he added on to Social Security in the 50s, and even when he did the interstate highway system, he was accused of succumbing to creeping communism, creeping socialism, by having the federal government get involved in that. And when the administration before Eisenhower, when Harry Truman advocated for broader health care coverage, uh, he was called a follower of the Moscow line, a socialist. So they all took a I'm lot seeing, of heat. I'm seeing a theme. Yeah, they all took a lot of heat 
when they yeah, made decisions yeah. that uh, people disagreed with. So what we're hearing now, we're, you've got one party calling one side socialist and the other party calling uh, uh, the other side uh, deplorables uh, chasing religion and guns. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not new, unfortunately. Um, who, was, who was the most hated president in United States history? Well, I can't really go back to the 19th century uh, credibly, but uh, since uh, uh, 1900, uh, the, the president that left with the lowest ratings was Harry Truman. Why was why is okay? Well, because the primary reason was that when the Korean War happened, uh, General Douglas MacArthur was running that. Uh, he did a good job of chasing the South Koreans, the North Koreans, out of South Korea. But then he chased them into North Korea, and he was right on the edge of the Chinese border and, and wanted to go into China, possibly with nuclear weapons. Uh, Truman said, "No, don't do that. Retreat. Come back." He then went to Congress and tried to go around Truman, who was the commander in chief, and Truman fired him on the spot. Now, MacArthur was very, very popular. He was voted the most uh, popular man in the United States in 1946, I think. He was a great general in World War II. And so when Truman left, uh, he left with the lowest popularity ratings, at least on average, his last year of any president. Now, today he's considered one of our best presidents, certainly in the top 10, and I think some ratings rate him like number six. So he certainly was one of them. Another one I'll mention that I think is underrated is uh, uh, former President Jimmy Carter. Uh, in many respects, uh, well, let me just say this, many people consider Carter a very failed uh, and terrible president, okay? Uh, that was because he lost so badly to uh, Ronald Reagan and near the end of his presidency, he gave a speech we basically chastised the American people for moral and spiritual failings. It's called the Malay's speech. But he, uh, he in many ways, uh, laid the groundwork for Ronald Reagan. He uh, did more deregulation than Reagan or any subsequent president did. He deregulated the airlines. He deregulated the, the railroads and trucking, also energy. He did all that in the, like, in the 77 to 79 time frame. He was the first to say the issue with energy is not energy production, it's energy conservation. Energy growth in the United States was growing 1.2% per year, it had been for decades, and Carter said, we can't continue this because otherwise it's going to become an impossible situation. We'll never produce enough oil or energy to counter that. So if you, the, and he fostered a, uh, legislation in 1978 to reduce energy consumption and focus on conservation. And that immediately plateaued energy consumption per capita and then began declining. And today, Americans on, as, a per, as a people per capita use 15% less energy today than they did in 1978, whereas wow. energy wow. production per capita has only gone up roughly 7 or 8%. So it's conservation that's made this country energy independent, not energy production. And Carter, Carter. Should get, Carter should get credit for that. One other thing about Carter uh, he is a very moral uh, uh, and honorable man. He basically learned his communication skills teaching kindergarten. And I don't say that in a pejorative way. I, mean, I beg your pardon, my apologies. Teaching Bible, uh, Bible school or uh, Sunday school, starting yeah, at yeah. Annapolis when he was a naval cadet, all the way through his presidency and even today in the Baptist Church in Georgia. Uh, in contrast, Reagan t learned his skills as a radio announcer, or a corporate spokesman, a movie star, the governor of California. Reagan had superb communication skills. Carter had skills that, communication skills that were more focused on being a sermon or a minister. So, for example, the Iranian hostages 
the, the negotiations, were, negotiations were completed by J Jimmy Carter the day before Reagan took office. The Iranians had concluded, well, we've been negotiating with Clinton for uh, Carter for uh, nine months. Let's get this wrapped up rather than starting over with Reagan. So they signed a deal the day before Reagan took office. Carter did not announce that. He did not announce that because he said, my foremost objective is that those people get out of, the, uh, get out of Iran. And so he, uh, the, 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 uh, that didn't happen until the inauguration day. And they didn't get out of Iranian airspace until about an hour after uh, President Reagan's speech, at which point Ronald Reagan announced that hostages were free. And 90 percent of Americans believe where well, Reagan did that and still believe that. Reagan mm -hmm. never corrected himself and Carter never asked for a correction. Very interesting. Um, so, to flip the to flip the uh, the script on that, then who do you think is the most overrated president? That's a hard one to say. Um, <laughs> you know, because you're gonna you're gonna upset some people that like whoever you were gonna say. <laughs> no, uh, that's really not it. You know, one thing when you write a biography, uh, and you really study people. Everybody has faults, uh, including the most recent president, uh, and including presidents going back uh, 200 years. But I think I believe for the most part, uh, every president tried to do his best for the country. Now they made a lot of mistakes, and uh, I uh, I personally strongly disagree with the fact that the uh, the nation uh, the, the election was stolen in 2020, for example. And I think uh, you know to uh, to address that issue, I think. Uh, Former President Trump is doing a huge disservice to America and democracy by claiming it is and building distrust. Uh, mm -hmm. But he did many things good. Uh, so you can put him where you want to. But I think that uh, for the most but part, I don't think I don't overrated, overrated. You can't say that Trump was overrated because a lot of people don't like him. Well, no, so but he's got a very he's a, he's got a very strong divided. He's got a very very strong following with people that have him. Understood. And understood, so you understood. can you can it, you have to say from what perspective it is being overrated. From a historian perspective, if you look at professional historians, you may or may not trust their opinions. But if you look at professional historians, the most recent survey of uh, of Trump put him like I think number three from the bottom, just below below Warren G. Harding. So he's not rated highly at all by professional historians. We'll see what history uh, brings up, but uh, not today. No. Very interesting. Um, January 6th, has there ever been other events like that in history at that level? No, not. Uh, there has not been an attack on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812. That was unique. And uh, other than the Civil War, where you had outright insurrection uh, for four years during the Civil War, we've never had an incident as serious as what happened January 6th, uh, 2020. And what's shameful is we're divided as a nation, whether it even matters or whether it actually happened as most people believe it did. I think, I think that's, so, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the issue with Trump is, is the, the service that he's doing to democracy. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest blemish on his, on his presidency is this entire uh, this entire uh, January 6th, uh, the, the culmination of all these uh, negative things that happened on January 6th. Um, no, I, it's just interesting to me because um, being a Canadian, uh, I didn't realize that I didn't realize how serious that was until you start to look at history and realize that nothing like that has ever happened in, in US history. That and and I guess like you start to, you do understand how serious it is. But um, the fact that uh, you know, you you don't realize that that has never happened before at any level outside of like because protests are one thing, 
going into a state capital is a is a very different thing. That's a, that's where the lines are crossed, and I don't understand why that seems to be a a, a discussion point as to why that is a good or bad thing. It doesn't really make sense. Well, to me. it's it's politics and what I call the American political industry, uh, where you've got a lot of interested parties, uh, whether it's cable news or players on the internet or. Uh, various people who make a lot of money by spreading information that some people want to hear and they tell them what they want to hear. And it may be disinformation. It may not be true, but it's a good way to make money. Um, that, I talk about that in my book. Uh, I think the the insurrection and the attack on the cap, the, the national capital was bad. But I think the thing that is even worse is the doubt and, and distrust that's been spread about the, Amer the American electoral process where uh, you can't trust who's elected. You, you, you know, for 200 years, we had elections where people won and lost, and people oftentimes were very distressed that their favorite person lost, but they accepted the results of the election, and they said, we're going to try harder and win next time in four years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a very divisive election in, in the year 2000 between Gore and, uh, and Bush. But when uh, the Supreme Court ruled against uh, Bush, he accepted that, welcomed uh, Bush into the presidency, and we moved on as a yeah, nation. Yeah. What's happened in 2000, uh, what happened uh, on January, what happened really uh, in November of 2020 when uh, President Bush did not accept the results of the election, that was unprecedented. And it really undermines democracy because if you can't trust the election and who's been elected, you don't have a democracy. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um do you feel as though do you feel as though he's going to run again? Um, I guess it would be in twenty twenty four, correct? That's when Well I I can't say, over. Scott. I mean that's uh like I said, my book really hasn't focused on politics. I think that <laughs> but I always that's try fair, to that's fair. No, no, I apologize. I don't mean to I don't mean to push you down. No, I, that I, road. I, I just always try but I, uh, with that caveat, I always try to answer yeah. the question as best I can. I think he may well run if he thinks he, he has uh, almost a lock on winning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I think if he doesn't, isn't almost certain he's going to win, I don't think he's going to run because I think he can't play that game twice saying, okay, I got cheated again. Yeah. I don't yeah. think yeah. that's going yeah. to work. Yeah. So he's got to be confident he's going to win if he's going to run. Um, let's, let's forget about Trump. Um, so main takeaways from studying uh, these, these presidents. Um, what, if somebody was to pick up your book and, and read your book, what, what do you hope for them to take away from it? Uh, I think the first thing I would hope for is that the situation that we're in today isn't totally unique. Many of the issues we're, we're, we're arguing over as a nation, uh, the role of the United States in the world, world affairs, in Europe and NATO, for example, the issues of immigration, okay, whether we should have higher or lower taxes, for example, all those are issues that have been discussed and debated now for, for decades, if not several hundred years. But certainly in the time frame of my book, those are all old issues that go back to Warren G. Harding and, and, and even beyond. So those aren't new. And in general, not always, in general, things are improving. Like I gave you the example of immigration. I mean, that was horrible back in the 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, it wasn't just a small group of people that were being excluded. It was Catholics and Jews, and it, 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 Congress talked about that. They, were, they did not contribute to racial homogeneity in the United States, Catholics and Jews. Who would say that now? So that's a very positive trend. Um, but we still have many things to do. But the, 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 the collapse of trust in American institutions, uh, from uh, news systems to science to the government, is distressing, and that's something I think is, is unique 
uh, in today's times. So, so we have to figure that out ASAP. Have to figure that out very, very quickly. Um, okay. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pull out some rapid fire questions from your career. You've had tons of success, and I think that will uh, really, really help uh, the listeners um, understand. You know, as you've navigated your career, some lessons that you've learned, and also what's allowed you to be so successful in your career, but also with some of the other things that you've you've taken on, including writing this book. But before I pivot, um, the most important question is: Where do people connect with you? Where do people get the book if they want to to read it, or they just want to ask questions? Um, what's the best uh, outlet? Social media, website, any of that? Well, the uh, the book's website is wethepresidents.us. We the presidents us. You go to that. You can read about the book and what people are saying about it. You can also find uh, like six links that take you where you can buy it. You can uh, you can buy it at your independent bookstore. Uh, they, if they don't have it in stock, you can ask them to order that because it's in all the computer records. They can order that and have it for you in a few days. Or you go to the big online retailers, of course, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble have it. So there's lots of places to get it. But you can start at we the presidents us. Okay, perfect. All right, let's ask a couple rapid fire questions. Um, like I said, you had a great career. Over your career, what was the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome and how did you overcome it? I think that the first company I started uh, was publicly financed. We raised $107 million in the 80s and when that was serious money. And I was the chief executive and it was a public company. And so managing a public company was very, very challenging. You had to meet quarterly revenue objectives and profit objectives. And, and that really drove how you ran your business in a negative sense. So after 10 years of Alliant, we hit a brick wall with what was happening in computers. We were manufacturing computers that sold for half a million dollars and everything was moving the desktop. And that company basically, unfortunately, pretty much folded. I took a year and a half off and started a what evolved into an internet company, but I decided then that I was going to grow that organically with my own money and maybe just a little bit of outside money. So I raised just a quarter million dollars in the early 90s, uh, plus my own money, and started Sheridan.com and grew that to millions and millions of dollars by 2006. And I have to say that was a huge struggle doing that from the ground up, but I retained control and I could make decisions I thought were best for the company, the people and the customers, as opposed to being beholden as a public company. Uh, and the same thing happened with Sky Analytics when I started that in 2009, ran that the same way, sold that successfully. So that was the single biggest challenge, going from having lots and lots of money as a public company, but basically being a servant to the expectations of the stock market every 90 days, to bootstrapping up as an organic company, but running things the way we thought were best for the long term. You felt you felt much more comfortable, I'm assuming, um, when you were running the bootstrap company, even yes. though it was like, like significantly it more. It had its own set of challenges and pressures, but I felt yeah, much more yeah. comfortable that way. Amazing. Um, you've had many people that have impacted your life. If you had to pick one person, who was that person who acted as a mentor and advisor, and what did they teach you? Well, I've had two, uh, and I'm talking about professional. I'm not talking about my dad, but I should mention my dad. I'm going to have to do that because my dad was a German immigrant. He immigrated from Germany when he was 18. He spoke no English, had no money. He went, he wound up in the Oklahoma oil fields. And after being there 20 years, he started his own company manufacturing drill bits, rolling drill bits that, you know, drill on the ground for oil. And he competed with successfully with Howard Hughes. 
Howard Hughes was a billionaire, a famous billionaire back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And all his wealth came from the drilling business, and my dad competed with him. So he was a, the model entrepreneur that, that hugely influenced me as, as a child and teenager. But two people professionally were uh, the founder of Data General, Ed DeCastro, who I'm still very much friends with, and Tom Perkins, who was one of the founding members of Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm. Tom Perkins was the chairman of my, my board of directors for 10 years when uh, uh, Alliant, uh, Alliant was a public company. And it was just a superb mentor, had a great sense of humor, and just a, a wonderful individual, just like Ed DeCastro is today and was uh, back in the 60s when I first went to work for Data Journal. So I had some very good mentors, my dad, Ed DeCastro, Tom Perkins. Amazing. Um, a book or podcast or something that's influenced your life, um, what is it? What would you recommend? What did you learn from it? Uh, well, I've read so many books, it's hard to pick one out. I think if I were to kind of just focus on this topic here about yeah, the yeah. presidents, um, I believe it was Chernoy's book on Eisenhower. I believe it was Chernoy, Ron Chernoy that wrote that on Eisenhower. I read that about five or seven years ago, about 2015. And I uh, I found that really an excellent biography of Eisenhower and the issues the president has to deal with. And that picked my interest on the presidency. And I would say that as much as anything influenced the fact that, you know, I might want to write one of my own on the presidency, but take a different cut at it. Not so much about the issues and the politics of being president, looking backward as to how he got to be president, but basically looking forward as to what happened when he was president, how, how do policies of today's president, of yesterday's presidents affect today? I love that. And I think that that's a, that, first of all, obviously, um, people have to go read your book, but I think that to pique curiosity, books that are great at piquing curiosity about history and sort of uh, pushing people down that rabbit hole so that they do, uh, they do understand history and civic history a little bit more, I think is a positive thing. So it's a good recommendation as well. Um, if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my 20 year old self don't be so impatient I think uh, one of my strengths is I have a high energy level and I'm driving, driving, driving all the time you know whether that was with my companies or sometimes with my family and my wife who has a tremendous uh, tolerance for some of my personal flukes, okay? Uh, and I think if I had it, would have tell my 20-year-old self and my 74-year-old self would be, uh, calm down, don't be quite so impatient, okay? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that's good advice I have to still take. Good, good, good. Um, and then last question, what does success mean to you? You know, success is important, but I'll give you an example, an, an insight I had. Uh, when I sold Sheridan.com in 2006. Um, I was always comfortable. I made good salary. I made money uh, off stock at Lyant, uh, but I was never really wealthy or, you know, absolutely uh, independently uh, wealthy. Mm -hmm. And when I sold Sheridan.com, uh, we sold that for a substantial amount. And I realized that, okay, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, very much independently wealthy and my kids might be too. And I realized, you know, I'm an engineer, so I think in numbers. I said, if happiness is on a scale of one to a hundred, before I sold Sheridan.com, I think my happiness was like 93 or 94. I was very happy. Of course, that's one of two things that you were worried about. That's why it wasn't 100. And I said, you know, 
After selling this company, maybe my happiness ticks up to 95 or 96, but it doesn't tick up that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice to have the money, but it's not that important. And, that, and people would say, well, Ron, you can say that because you've got it. But I can say with you all sincerity, that's exactly how I felt as I was making this deal to sell Shoda.com, that having that money is nice, but it's relatively small compared to your family, your health, your friends, having something, a job or a hobby or something that captures your attention, uh, makes you feel like you're contributing. All that is actually far more better than having a bunch of money saying, you know, I don't have to work anymore. I can get up and play golf all day. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. 
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 